thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty. I'm delighted to have you join me today, especially all those who have just tuned into our podcast through the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network and my appearances on the Cross Politics Show. And let me welcome you especially, and let me encourage those of my listeners who are not familiar with the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network to uh, take a look at it and consider joining. I am personally a member of the Fight, Laugh, Feast Club Network and uh, would encourage you to do so as well. I think today is going to be revelatory because, to be honest, preparing for it was revelatory for me. And what began to happen as I put together today's podcast was I realized that perhaps one of the most important decisions in, I don't know when, by the United States Supreme Court actually was the Bruin case involving the New York Gun and Rifle Club, I don't remember the exact name, but uh, that was decided right before, the day before, the Dobbs decision on abortion. It was an opinion written by Clarence Thomas, and he was joined in that opinion by five justices. Now, that's very important to appreciate, because Judge Roberts, the Chief Justice, if you'll recall, in the Dobbs case, was an outlier. There were five justices who wanted to reverse Roe versus Wade, three that wanted to uphold Roe versus Wade, and then Justice Roberts came up with this reasonable opportunity to have an abortion standard that's nowhere in the Constitution and just made it up out of his own head. So to get Justice Roberts to sign on to this opinion I'm going to describe to you today is very important. I would even suggest to you that it is the outline for Christians and conservatives to use to figure out how to put the United States Supreme Court back into its limited role as a judicial body making decisions, issuing judgments pertaining only to the parties in the courtroom as to who should win in the context of a particular legal dispute. See, what's happened in our culture is we think decisions and holdings of the Supreme Court constitute the supreme law of the land. And that's a myth, and it's unconstitutional, and it's wrong. But we've swallowed it, and the court has encouraged us to swallow it. Lawyers, I think, have even encouraged us to swallow it because it makes the legal offices and the judicial offices the most powerful branch of government in the country. So what I want to do today is a a couple of things, and I may not get to them all. I want to make sure that I work through them carefully so that they're fully appreciated. They are so important. I hope if you're in a place where you can take some notes that, that you'll do so. I hope that if you find this helpful, you'll share this podcast with your friends. Tell them that they need to listen if they want to get what's not only what's going on in the judicial branch, in the Supreme Court in particular, but what we have to grasp to know how to, as Christians, proceed forward as we are enacting statutes and arguing cases in front of courts. If six justices are going to lay out the blueprint 
for how to construe the Constitution, we would do well to pay attention to it. So I want, I want to cover some things today, and what I don't get covered we'll pick up tomorrow. Now, some of you who may have heard me on the cross-politic broadcast from uh, earlier this week talking about the Respect for Marriage Act, and, and my friend Dave Shannon, uh, Chuck Knox, uh, said, I sure hope you'll cover this Respect for Marriage Act and, and the Windsor and Obergefell cases, and, and I will do that. But I, I think what we're going to cover today is so important to actually to put that discussion in a better context. But it flows from what we've been talking about regarding the Constitution and how it's to be understood in the context of history. Now, if you've missed some of the last episodes, you've heard me say that the postmodernist today the, is, is logically correct when he says, if there is no God, there is nothing about history that would help us understand how to live today because history is just a series of random, purposeless, non-theological events happening in succession. As Mark Twain said, history is just one damn thing after another. So what can we learn from them? I pointed out last week that the dissenters in the Dobbs case said we've come to new societal understandings. Now, we're not talking about we've come to understand the pros and cons of technology versus, uh, you know, the, the Pony Express. What they're talking about there is society's come to an understanding of the nature of the universe itself, cosmology, and of anthropology, who we are. And cosmology always determines, eventually, your anthropology. So what the dissent was saying is there is no meaning to history. History has only such meaning as we give it now. Okay? That's what's going on. Now, in this Bruin case that I'm going to talk about, Clarence Thomas and five other justices say something completely different and completely different about even the very nature of the Constitution. So I want to begin with with a quote here from the Bruin case that, that frames the whole understanding that we need to have about the Constitution. So I think it was last week or the week before, I said that the court has taken the due process clause, which says that no state shall deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. They've taken the word liberty and treated it essentially as a vacuous aspiration to liberty, whatever that may happen to be. There's no historical content to liberty. There's just this abstract thought of liberty and whatever we now think liberty means, which can be completely different from what it meant 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 200 years ago. And the meaning today may be completely washed away another 50 years from now. Again, why? Because history has no meaning behind it because there's no personality to give it meaning that is behind it if there is no God of the Bible. Now, I want to just add parenthetically here. I said the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is personal because the God of the Bible is also triune and in relationship. A monotheistic God, such as the Jews would believe in, in their denial of the Trinity, 
and the Muslims believe in cannot have personality because there's nothing to be personal with. There's just one thing. Imagine being on a deserted island. How personal would you really be? You'd be like Tom Hanks in that movie where he's drawing a face on the volleyball and, and um, you know, pretending he's got some company. That, that's what they have to do because their God didn't have any company. To have any company, he had to create. The Christian believes God never had to create. He was perfectly content as God in the fellowship of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So our doctrine of Trinity is critical to our understanding of history and the nature of history and history even having some meaning. You, just not any God will do to give history meaning. Now, let me move on. I'm going down a rabbit trail. I hope that's helpful. But here's something the court said that I doubt few people appreciate. In the Second Amendment case, the court was trying to figure out, again, what to do with this right of the people to bear arms, right? So here's what Clarence Thomas writes, again, joined in by five other justices. It's always been widely understood that the Second Amendment codified a pre-existing right. Now that's a critical concept there, my friends. In other words, the right does not exist because the Constitution was written down on a piece of paper and adopted by people. It was a codification. It was, in essence, an enactment in the very same sense as the enactment of statutes by your legislature, except this is the enactment of a Constitution by the ratification of the several states, not by just the representatives of a particular state's legislature. The next sentence, Thomas says, the amendment was not intended to lay down a novel principle, but rather codified a right inherited from our English ancestors. So again, you see this notion of codification, okay? It's not something novel. In other words, it has been worked out over centuries, that's the whole concept behind common law, in the context of history as we continue to apply, particularly in the West, Christianized understandings of the cosmos and anthropology and the law of God. And so there is this thing that we've distilled over a period of time is that you need to be able to bear and to keep arms. And all we did was take that thought, existing in the common law, and codify it. Now, this is fascinating to me. When you read William Blackstone's commentaries on the laws of England, and William Blackstone is routinely quoted by the United States Supreme Court, in fact, in the Dobbs decision, his commentaries on the laws of England were cited as authority or quoted nine or ten times. Okay, so this is not David Fowler going back in some dusty old book. It's on the shelf. Nobody's read in a long time. The Supreme Court used it in June to understand the right to abortion and the common law treatment of abortion. Okay, so here's what Blackstone said. Statutes, which are enactments, codifications. They are codifying something that already exists. They're writing it down. So picture here uh, the Pentateuch. The events had already happened. 
what what Moses did was essentially codify them. He, he wrote them down so that so that people could read them and see them and not have to pass them down through stories and and um, oral communications, right? And and that's really what what judges were doing. They were discerning principles in the context of a legal dispute, and they would issue an opinion saying, "Here's how we discern these enduring principles, these these concepts, and we apply them now in this particular situation." And um, and and they would have an opinion. Now the opinion was not the law or the principle. The law or the principle existed independent of the opinion. It was just the judge's thoughts as to how that principle applied to the particular facts of the particular case. So judges did not understand themselves as making law. The law was already made. It exists essentially from eternity and is being worked out in our customs and traditions. And my job is to just figure out how to next apply that to the the new situation that's now in front of me. But I don't want to depart too far from that, so let me go back. He said their statutes are either declaratory of the common law or remedial of some defects therein. Now, there was a great battle that took place in our country over codification versus the common law. In other words, leave the law in the hands of judges to discern and apply to particular situations when conflicts arise and let's not start putting everything down in statutes and codifying it, okay? But, as Blackstone said, part of the purpose of the statutes is to remedy defects in the common law. And we're gonna talk about that in just a moment. So in other words, what Blackstone is saying is the statutes are only declaring the law that already exists or fixing some defect in them that we've now discovered. And rather than leave that defect to be worked out in the judicial system, we're going to go ahead and, and specify it by statute that this is really how this is supposed to look, how it's supposed to work going forward. Now, this, the United States Supreme Court has said the very same thing. Listen to this quote from Munn versus Illinois in 1877 which is after the ratification of the 14th Amendment in 1868. Quote, the great office of statutes, their great purpose, is to remedy defects in the common law as they are developed and to adapt it to the changes of time and circumstances. So you see, the United States Supreme Court is again parroting what William Blackstone said what Clarence Thomas said. The Constitution was a codification of certain principles and aspects of the common law. So, if you want to understand what's been codified from the common law, where do you have to go to find out what the words that have been codified mean? You have to go back to the common law. If you don't know the common law, you don't know the Constitution. And I will tell you, that I don't think I have ever met a legislator who actually understands that. Now, I will also confess to you that until about four or five years ago, I had never heard that, and I wouldn't have known it either. So I'm not, I'm not damning them or anybody or anybody in the audience here that's listening. I'm just saying that's how much of what we've lost because we've lost within the church 
a proper understanding of history as the revelation of God as he works out in his providence as his eternal plan of redemption. And so history is just data points along the way. And perhaps we can learn something from them. But it's much deeper, much more important, much more substantive than that for the Christian and even for, really, the lawyer who understands the common law. Now, I can tell I'm going to run out of time today to get to other points in, in this Bruin decision that are vital, and so I'll pick them up next week. But I want to carry this point on home with you, particularly in the context of marriage. You see, when the Supreme Court came out with its decision in 2015 and said that state statutes that define marriage as a man and a woman are now constitutionally unenforceable because the state has created something that is now used to accord benefits to, quote, married people, and they don't let same-sex couples get married. Essentially, the idea is your statutes created marriage, and if you're going to create something, you have to apply it to all people and your definition be broad enough to encompass all people. Now, in the dissent, Justice Roberts accurately asked, well, if indeed the government creates it, and we're supposed to apply it equally to all people, why can we not apply it to three people who think that is what marriage now is? If we're just making it up, uh, shoot, we'll make up anything to be marriage. Why was the majority saying marriage is limited to two people? That's made up too, right? If you're going to make it up, you're going to make it up. You're going to make it all up. You can't just make up the parts you want. If you're going to divorce yourself from the common law understanding and, and correct some defect, if that's what you were doing, that marriage was never understood at common law as relating to two people of the same sex or was, was a defect because it only envisioned two people, well, if that's what you're going to say the statutes were doing, that that was a defect in the common law understanding of marriage, then, then you can make it up any way you want. It's just a matter of political will to make it one way versus another. Now, if, however, those statutes were not correcting a defect but codifying a principle about the nature of marriage that already existed, well, then the Supreme Court isn't free to change it. Now, I'll interject here. There are other questions involved in Obergefell beyond just the definition of marriage, such as who has jurisdiction over that institution between the federal governments and the state governments. That's a different issue. I don't want to get into that today. I'm just looking at this question of the relationship between common law and statutes that statutes are either declaring what the common law is already, codifying it, or they're correcting a defect in it. So what was the court doing in Obergefell? It had to be saying that either government has now created marriage by virtue of statute, which means that if the statutes were repealed, there would be no such thing as marriage. It just wouldn't exist, right? Or the majority would have to take the position well, we were correcting a defect in the common law's understanding of marriage that limited it to a man and a woman. 
And of course, the next defect will be it was limited to two people. Or were those statutes enacted by those states just codifying what the common law already said because what the common law said was true about the nature of men and women and certain relationships between men and women. Now, I'm going to show you how this gets worked out, and then I'll have to close uh, the podcast for today, and we're going to come back to some other really critical things that Justice Thomas and five justices said in the Bruins case. As I said, they laid out how for us to proceed in the future if we have the wisdom and the courage to just follow the plan. So, in this case from 1877, which again is post-14th Amendment, so it, in other words, the 14th Amendment wasn't understood to have changed what this decision from 1877 was saying. It's called Meister versus Moore. I've talked about it in previous episodes, but let me tell you what happened because you'll see how this is worked out. I think it's just, uh, wow. For me, it's cool. Maybe I'm a nerd, but I hope you'll find it cool too. In that case, Meister versus Moore, there was a person named William Mowry who had died. The question was, who owned a piece of property that Mr. Mowry owned? Now, there were people fighting over that based upon whether Mr. Mowry was married at the time he died. If he was married at the time he died, the property would have gone to his wife and his descendants, his children, through his wife. If he wasn't married, it would revert back to the ownership would have passed on to his mother, who apparently didn't have a will. And then she could give it to whomever she wanted. So you can see this, this is an important question. Was he married or not? Here's what the, the, the Supreme Court said about the case. At the trial court, the jury was instructed that, quote, neither a minister nor a magistrate was present at the alleged marriage of William Mowry, and the marriage was invalid under the Michigan statute. In other words, the statute was the only way you could marry. The government had taken total jurisdiction over what God had created. Now, the Supreme Court says the trial judge withdrew from the consideration of the jury all evidence, if there was any, of informal marriage by contract per verba de presente, which means in Latin, I'm sure I didn't pronounce it correctly, but it means words in the present moment. So in other words, the trial judge says, if you didn't have a magistrate present at the time, then the fact that you exchanged marital vows that everybody would have understood as marital vows is not a marriage. And we're not going to let the jury consider any evidence that perhaps there were a thousand people present, just not a minister, who heard the man and the woman exchange their marital vows, who heard them refer to each other as husband and wife for the next 30 or 40 years. We're not going to allow any of that evidence because you didn't have a minister present as required by the statute. Okay, so here we're getting into this question. What was the statute doing? What was the purpose of the statute? Was it providing some kind of formal process for marriage, or was it saying, if you don't do this, there is no such thing as marriage? Now, here's what the United States Supreme Court said. They said this, that the contract 
by words of the present moment, exchanging marital promises, quote, constitutes a marriage at common law, there can be no doubt in view of the adjudications, meaning court decisions, trying to discern the common law, the truth, so that they could apply it to particular situations, made in this country from its earliest settlement to the present day. So if you want to know what marriage is, courts have been litigating this forever, and, and we have consistently held that if you exchange certain kinds of promises, it is a marital relationship. It's not prostitution. It's not renting. It's not an employment relationship. It's a marital relationship, okay? It says, statutes in many of the states, it is true, regulate the mode of entering into the contract, but they do not confer the right. In other words, a competent man and woman have a right that comes from God in the nature of things, worked out and discerned and applied over the course of history that men and women are different and they enter into a particular or unique relationship called marriage, and we will enforce it the same as we would any other thing that's in the nature of a contract. That's what I was trying to argue to the General Assembly in Tennessee. If you're competent to rent a condo at Pigeon Forge or down at the beach, you're competent to enter into a marital agreement without the government having to give you permission. They do not give you a vacation rental license to say, oh, well, if you're competent enough to, to go rent a condo for, for your vacation, come apply. No, they don't do that. They don't say, oh, you need to come down and make sure that you're competent to enter into uh, an employment agreement with an attorney to hire him. Uh, so you need to come down and get your hiring attorney license. No, we don't do that. Oh, my. Although some people think we probably should. So the court goes on and says, hence, they are not within the principle that where the statute creates a right and provides a remedy for its enforcement, the remedy is exclusive. In other words, the right to marriage isn't created by the government. So when you create these statutes, they're not within the scope of this idea that we've created something completely brand new, novel, you might say, and therefore, that's the only way to do it. Marriage is not some novel thing. The statutes are simply codifying what the pre-existing law was and must be interpreted in light of that. Now, here's what the court says. This was so good to me. No doubt a statute may take away a common law right, but there is always a presumption the legislature has no such intention unless it be plainly stated. That's doing exactly what I've been talking about. The marriage statutes codified what marriage was already according to the common law. The same thing Clarence Thomas was saying was true about the Second Amendment. It's not something novel. It's codifying what was already true at common law, which the United States Supreme Court has said that's what statutes do. They codify the pre-existing law or correct the defect in it. Now, you may ask, well, then why did states start licensing statutes? And the Supreme Court went on in the Meister case to say, the presumption is that these statutes were not abrogating a common law right, a pre-existing right in a man and a woman, but they were intended to provide a registration and evidence of marriage. In other words, they were correcting a defect in the common law relative 
to proving the marriage, which was the very difficulty in the Meister Mora case. There wasn't a minister present, so was the requirement there be a minister something that made something a marriage, or was that a means of providing proof of a marriage so that there would be somebody who saw it, that you didn't just say, will you be my wife? And, and the woman said, will you be my husband? And you did it out in the backyard and nobody was around and uh, who's there to prove it? So a picture of this sort of situation. This Mr. Mallory, you know, his family's been farming in North Georgia for years, like my family did. Uh, and, and he leaves during the Depression and goes up to Detroit to get a job because he can't make a living. Or goes out west, you know, gets caught in a dust bowl, whatever it is, and, and exchanges the vows over there. And then he finds out his father's passed away and he needs to come home and take back over the family farm. 30 years later, dad's finally dead. So on the way back to North Georgia to take over the family farm, uh, Mr. Mowry, the son of the farmer, he dies. Now the question is, did the property pass to Mr. Mowry as the descendant of the father, and does it now go to his wife, if they're married, or does it revert to Mr. Mowry's brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles, if there's no will? We had to know the answer to that question. Well, 30 years after they got married up in Detroit, Mr. Mowry's in a court in North Georgia and they're disputing the title to the property. And he's got to find the minister who's now likely dead 30 years later. Can't bring him back to testify. My best man may have moved off and I don't know where he is. I mean, I have people from my wedding and I've lost track of them. I don't know where they went. So how am I going to prove now I got married? How's my widow going to say, no, I own that property and it should go on to our children? But these were not bastard children. It shouldn't revert to, to my husband's siblings. That's why we needed to have marriage licenses. Now, they also became a handy tool to keep blacks and whites from marrying. But the original purpose of the statutes was not so much to, to, to prevent interracial marriages as it was to provide a registration of marriages and to make the proof of them more easy. It was correcting a defect not in how many people could marry or a defect in what kinds of people, male and female, can marry, but how do you prove the marriage? We've never argued that in court. I'm trying to argue that in Tennessee. I'm hoping other states will argue it in other places. But that's what Clarence Thomas is telling us to do. And I hope you'll tune in next week as I go through two other important things Clarence Thomas was telling us to do. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.